I hope that you know that you are worshiping, that you're a part of a, a time together today where our focus is not on the band, it's not on me, but it's on a Savior who came for us. He came, he lived, he loved, he died, he rose again. And we're celebrating him every single week. But what a time of the year to celebrate him in this, in this season. Um, July, I know it's December, but in July, 1961, the Green Bay Packers report to, to their camp, their training camp, after a humiliating defeat in the previous NFL championship game against the Philadelphia Eagles, whenever in the fourth quarter they blew a lead to lose the game and lose the title of champions. They had all year to 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 deal with the, the bad press and to deal with the second guessing and the cheeseheads, uh, giving them a hard time for losing and blowing the game in the end. And until July, they, they, the, the players came together, all 38 of them gathered there, and they believed that the great Lombardi, the great Vince Lombardi would have some new plans, some new, some new schemes about how to get us back to this, to the championship game. And whenever they got there, they were going to advance their game like never before. So there was a bit of a humiliation and shame, but it, it got quickly turned to motivation and how can we make it better? All along, whenever the coach calls them together, the very first words out of his mouth, he gathers them together in the locker room, sets them down, and he looks with almost an awkward but yet an intentional pause at every one of them, and he holds up a pigskin, an inflated piece of leather, and many of y'all know the story, what he says next. He says, this is a football. He tells an NFL nearly championship team that this is a football. They didn't need to know that. They knew what that pigskin was. They knew they had played it. They, they had done it professionally. They got paid to play. But yet, what he did on that day was not pull out a new bag of tricks, but actually hold up the most basic fundamental. And then he gathered them around, and he said, now open up your playbooks to page one. And we're going to go back to the beginning, and we're going to learn how to block and tackle. And we're going to do some of the most basic fundamentals. And his focus was not like, how can we get a new bag of tricks? How can we do things new and different and innovative? But what can we do back to the basics, back to the fundamentals? Grace Point, this is a Bible. It is one story. It is God's story. It is 66 books written over a span of 1,500 years, 40 different authors, men and women included. And in that, over three different continents, by the way, and there's, there's literally thousands of chapters and verses of a story that is endless and timeless and is still relevant today as when the original writers wrote it. And it has such an impact on our life. And we don't need a new innovative faith. We need to get back to the fundamentals. And understand the power of this story. This one singular story contained in 66 books. Adrian Rogers said it like this, the Bible doesn't contradict itself ethically, theologically, doctrinally, historically, scientifically, philosophically, or morally. 
It is one consistent story with a consistent theme throughout. This one story has two covenants. It has an old covenant or an Old Testament and a New Testament. That's how this story is divided. I like to, whether it be called the first covenant and the second covenant, because I think when the old covenant comes up, we think that's old, we become dismissive with it. It's not relevant to us today. It's not important. We just need to focus on the new, but we have to understand the new by first understanding the old. And when we understand the power of a covenant, We are understanding something that is absolutely life-changing. The closest thing we have for it in our modern minds is a contract. But even a contract is not a covenant. A contract is based on distrust. And it is self-interest. Just go out and ask someone to give you a contract. And you will be looking at that contract through the lens of yourself, just as they wrote it or their attorneys wrote it through the lens of them. And you will be constantly be negotiating a contract. A contract is not a covenant, but it's the closest thing we have to it. A covenant is based on trust. And its focus is of mutual interest, not singular self-interest. We have a book of a covenant And if you don't understand the value and the power of the covenant, then really you're not going to understand the fundamentals of this book. The Hebrew word beret is the word for covenant. It is used over 200 times in the Old Testament alone. It is a major theme of the Bible. It is how God weaves his story together. Using a Near Eastern ancient template, if you will, for 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 a covenant, uh, a suzerain covenant was where you had a suzerain, which was the emperor or the king or the mightier one, and a vassal king individual, and they would enter into a covenant relationship with one another, built on mutual interest, built on trust, and they would come together and they would agree upon how they would operate together. The Bible has over 30 different covenants in it. However, there are 13 covenants between God and humanity. We are focusing on four of them in this Advent season. Because these four covenants, I think really, in fact, I would probably say probably all 13, but we don't have time for 13, uh, we, that all 13, but, but at least four of them will at least point to build on week over week, covenant over covenant, leading up to the new covenant. There's only one covenant in the New Testament, by the way. 13 God to man humanity covenants in the Old Testament, but only one covenant in the New Testament. We'll get there. In the weeks ahead. Last week we talked about the blessing covenant. It's kind of like I understand the covenant, understand the suzerain covenant, that there's this emperor king, there's this vassal below that king, and they enter into this covenant relationship, this this mutual uh, trust of, of one another. And this blessing covenant that we talked about last week is the Abrahamic covenant, or uh, the Abrahamic covenant, as, as many people call it. It's a unilateral covenant. It is God making a covenant with humanity. We read this last week, but for review, you'll notice the I wills, what God will do. He never says, if you do. He always says, I will do. I will do this. 
And then notice how many times he uses the word bless. Genesis chapter 12, verses 1, he says, I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I'll make your name great so that, here's the purpose clause, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and I will dishonor uh, you uh, I, uh, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed. This is a covenant that God makes with Abraham. Abraham is simply the recipient of this covenant. God chose Abram, a pagan individual, 70 plus years of age, and he's living in a pagan world and God in his sovereign grace and love reaches down and calls him into a relationship with him. And it's a covenant relationship. That same covenant gets passed down to his sons and to his grandsons and to his great-grandsons to to where it goes out to the 12 tribes of Israel. And it's going to make its way to every family on the earth. That's why you can I and you and I can live under the blessing of God because of this one covenant. In Genesis chapter 26, it says, In your offspring, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. So he continues to reiterate that. David picks it up and believes in the same covenant. Whenever he says in chapter uh, 22 of Psalms, All the nations of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. This great calling of God to uh, uh, that he has given us a blessing. It's kind of like walking into grandma's house, looking underneath the tree, finding a present with your name on it. And that name tells you something, that you have been chosen for a gift. This has been picked out for you. You didn't do anything to earn it. It is a gift to you. All you do is receive it, and that's it. And that's the beauty of the blessing covenant. And I hope that we will live and understand that that blessing is for us. But here's the great thing about the blessing covenant. If you live under the blessing covenant. Is you can give the blessing covenant away. And never lose it yourself. Hear that. You give the blessing away. And therefore you would think if you give it away you lose it. No, no, no. It's one of those gifts that as you give it away. It stays with you, but you give it away. So therefore, the calling is on us to pass on the blessing from one person to the next to the next. We are blessed to be a blessing, and we need to see it that way. Let's talk about covenant number two. A few hundred years later, God makes another covenant. This covenant is with Moses. It's it's the Mosaic covenant, and it is what I want to call the covenant of direction. That God is not only wanting to bless us, but he's also wanting to steer and guide us. It's not just God up there giving out the blessings. You go on and do your thing. I'm just going to bless you and you choose your life and you live your life the way you want to live it. Actually, when we do that, we get ourselves in a bigger mess. And he has to come in and bail us out. No, what he wants to do is like, I'm going to bail you out. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to bring you out of the mire of your own brokenness. But here's what I want to do is I'm going to direct you as well. 
I'm going to give you some direction in your life so that you don't have to walk aimlessly through life and, and wonder. So it's kind of like you, you step up to this present that is given to you and you hold it. Now, what do you do when you get a gift? Somebody gives you a gift and, or you're anticipating this gift and Christmas is all about anticipation. These covenants are all about an anticipation is you begin to engage your senses. What is it? Well, it's too small to be a Tesla. So it's not a, it's not a car. You engage your sight. You engage the weight. You, you begin to feel it. it. You, you can lick it and taste it if you want to, or you can listen to it. And you begin to try to figure out what is it? What is this on the inside? Now, here's the, here's a, here's a nice little thing. Everybody who's here next week, we're going to start giving these gifts out to the families. If you're a family of one or you're a family of 21, we want to give you one of these gifts. But I want you to be in anticipation. What's inside that gift? What is, what can I anticipate being in that gift? Because I will tell you this, that Moses, nor Abraham, nor Isaac, nor, nor any of the other patriarchs, nor any of the other prophets, nor any king of God, knew full well everything that was going to be a part of the Christmas gift of Jesus. They didn't know. They didn't know a baby would be born in a manger. They knew pieces of the puzzle, but they didn't have the whole puzzle. They were bringing it, and God was giving them bit by bit, clue by clue. If you go back to the story of Adam and Eve, whenever they were in the garden, our mother and our father, they wanted to live outside of the direction of God. They wanted to do it their own way. And what happened to them? Three major things happened. They were kicked out of Eden. They lost shalom. And more than anything, their relationship with God was severed. That's huge. To, to, to be kicked out of Eden, the place of God's creation that's awesome and full of life and not death. Shalom is peace. They lost peace. We've been looking for peace in our world ever since. And to be separated from God because they were unwilling to follow the direction of God. The Mosaic Covenant is different. It's a not a unilateral covenant. It's a bilateral covenant. If you do this, I will do that. If you don't do this, I will do this. You understand a bilateral covenant every time you give the car keys to the kids. Every time you give some level of trust, there is a consequence if it doesn't follow through. Now, your love is not bilateral, I hope not. But that's a unilateral, I'm giving you my love. But, but to trust them, to give them something, there is a, there's a uh, condition involved. And a bilateral covenant has a condition. So take your Bibles and look at Exodus with me. We were in Genesis last week. We're going to Exodus this week. Next book over, chapter 19. He's at the foot of the hill of the mountain of God, Mount Sinai. I can't tell you the whole story. Just to realize that that's where he's at. Verse 1, on the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of, out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they set out from Rephium 
And they came into the wilderness of Sinai and they encamped in the wilderness. And Israel encamped before the mountain. While Moses went up, the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, to tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and how I brought you to myself. Hear the intimate relationship of God. Hear the compassion of God. You were suffering. You were in slavery. I brought you out. I defeated the most powerful person on the planet, Pharaoh. I brought you out so that we could be together. Brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed, if, 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 if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all the people's. For all the earth is mine. This is a beautiful covenant that God's making. And you shall be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. And these are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. He tracks himself back down the mountain. He tells the people of Israel and they go, yes, sign us up. We want that covenant. It is a bilateral covenant. If you do this, then I will do this. I will make your name great. I'll make you a great nation. I'm going to do all these things. But here's what I'm going to do. In the very next chapter, he's going to start giving some directives. We call them the Ten Commandments. Now, we don't like commands. We like suggestions. We like advice. You can take it or leave it. But if you're entering into a covenant with a suzerain king and you're the vassal, he's the superior and you're the inferior, he's the stronger and you're the weaker, then you do what he says because he has good intent behind it. Not because he's trying to oppress you. And in this moment, in chapter 20, all the way nearly to the end, chapter 31 of Exodus, he's going to be unpacking the Ten Commandments. And how we honor them and how we live them out and, and, and so on and so forth. And this is the law that God is establishing. Now hang with me. Hang with me on this. Because here's a question probably we're all subconsciously asking. I don't need direction from God. I got it figured out. Really? You got it all figured out. Beginning and the end. You don't make any of those stupid blunders that You don't have any dumpster fires. You don't have any days of regret and shame. Oh, but not right now. Okay. But what if I could mitigate those? What if I could live in the fullness of of all that God wants for my life? Well, to do that, I'm going to have to live under the direction of God. I can live under my direction or I can live under the direction of God in my life. And this bilateral relationship that we have, if we obey him, he's going to do certain things. So I want us to consider the benefits or the reasons for why we should listen to the directives of God, if you will. Five reasons, real quickly today. Number one, 
Whenever you listen to the directives of God, I don't care what they are. You think about the Ten Commandments. You can go into other principles and precepts in Scripture. Here's number one benefit. Number one reason is you put first things first. It helps you make decisions based on a a priority pecking order. Every day, consciously or subconsciously, we triage our day. We get up, we're problem solving. We're, we're, we're problem solving a, a, a supply chain issue. We're problem solving a relationship. We're problem solving uh, our kids and their emotional, mental, and I will, should say spiritual health. We are constantly looking at life and, and we are triaging it to what am I going to do today? How am I going to function today? By what guideline will I live my life today? And what God does is he does a great job of giving us 10 guiding principles in which we can shape and filter our life through these guiding principles. Helping us to put first things first. These 10 commandments, throw them up on the screen here. Because I'm not going to ask you to take a test because the, the number of people, anytime I do a Bible study through the Ten Commandments, I will typically ask you to take a test and write them down. The number of Christians who simply don't know the Ten Commandments is, is incredible. When you look at this list, you see that there's a side on the left and a side on the right. If I could break it down real quickly for you, because again, the rest of Exodus is dealing with these Ten Commandments, how to live them out, how to function them in your life, how to incorporate them into your life. But if you just want a a crypt notes, spark notes moment, here it is. That if you look on the far left side, that is more about our vertical relationship with God. And on the right side, it's more about the horizontal relationship with others. Most people would have got the horizontal. I don't kill somebody. I don't, I don't covet. I don't commit adultery. They would have really gotten those. Most people get those down. At least most of them. But they may not get the first part. They might get one or two of the first part. But I want you to see something here. First things first. Get your relationship right vertically. So you can live well horizontally. If I get the first side right, then the second side will definitely fit in order. But the problem is, is most people live by the squeaky will principle. Whatever will is squeaking the loudest gets my, gets me. Whatever in my life is, is more in demand or personal passions and desires or what I want. Well, what we need to do is we need to put ourselves to the side and we say, oh, wait, wait, what, what about this? In the very first one, I don't have time to do all of these, but no other gods. No, I don't have other gods. Who is your God? Because that's a question I think we all have to ask. Who is my God? Who's, who's first in my life? Who, who, who do I have a relationship with? Because God is calling me into a relationship. I want you to read 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. It'll appear on the screen here. I think it will. Here we go. I want you to read it out loud with me. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. So when I say God, I'm talking about Jesus, okay? So let's just put that out there. Hear what I'm about to say. Who's your God? Because if we don't get this one down, we're going to mess it all up. Who's your God? Who's your God? Who, who is Jesus your God? Because that is the most important thing. And if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, my friends, my friends, please, I beg you to start there. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus, start there. 
please connect with us as well. Text in, I want to pray with you. Give your life to Jesus today, right here where you're at. Who's your God? Second one, who's your idol? What's your, or what's your idol, I should say? Because the temptation is, is to say, I don't have idols. Idols were golden images carved out of precious stone and put up on a shelf and we bowed down to it. I don't have any of those. Well, in our culture, in the 21st century in America, we don't have golden images carved in precious stone upon a shelf that we bow down to. We have green paper that we fold over, put in our pocket, and we rise up early and we stay up late serving it all day long. We serve that almighty dollar. We live for it. We focus on it. Why does God say that we should give God our first and our best, even when it comes down to our finances? It's not because he needs our money. I promise you that. He owns all of it anyway. If he needed it from you, he would take it from you. He's God. But what he is asking us to do when we are called to be generous with our resources, he's calling us to put aside the idols and to put me first. Do you realize only 3% of Bible-believing Christians actually practice what's called biblical tithing where you take the first 10% of whatever you give, whatever you make, and you give it to God. 3% of Bible-believing, Jesus-confessing, followers of Jesus. Well, that's Old Testament. Remember, first covenant, new covenant, they're going together. It's all about putting priorities. First things first. A lot of people get so sucked into that uh, lie that they get captured by their idol every year. And we're going to start it again this year in January, January the 9th, Financial Peace University. I just encourage you, if you don't You've never been a part of it and you feel like you have an idol in your life of money and things, that would be a great place to, to start course correcting. I want to ask you this question throughout this message. What is your next step of obedience? Because if you're going to follow God's direction in your life, you got to make sure you put first things first. What's the next step of obedience? Number two, it gives you wisdom. And these build on each other. Once you get first things first, you got to realize that it gives you wisdom to make those decisions in life as you're navigating life. Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 6. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely the great nation is as wise and under, a wise and understanding people. We've got decisions that we make every day, all day long. If we put first things first, then we get into our decision-making. The Word of God is now shaping our decisions, pouring wisdom into our decision-making process. We start making wiser decisions. Listen, King David, read Psalm 119 on your own this week. If you don't have a Bible study plan, I want you to read Psalm 119. Take the next 20 days and read Psalm 119. Why do I say that? It's the biggest chapter in the Bible. But every, it's all built on 20 different Hebrew letters that it is subdivided. About four or five verses each letter. Just focus on each one of those for the next 20 days. And I want you to see this. Where does the word of God fit in King David's life? And you're going to find that it was a guiding 
light to every step that he made. Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. Yes, the decisions I make are holding my life in my hands. I want your word to guide me. Listen, the number of believers who don't spend time in God's word is is staggering. Listen, it's really going to be hard to live under the direction and receive the full flourishing benefit of walking in this covenant if you don't put first things first, if you don't seek God for his wisdom in his word. And number three benefit is that it leads to life. It leads to life. The beautiful things that God wants to do, God's directives are not meant to hold us back or to hold us down. They're seeking to set us free so that we can live, so that we can flourish. John 10, 10, Jesus said, I came to give him life and give it more abundantly. Jesus, God is about giving us life, not about disappointment. Yet Solomon warns us in this world, there are ways that seem right to a man, but they only end in death. Be very cognizant of this. You got lots of choices to make every day of your life. Stay in this relationship, get out of this. Take this new job, don't take this new job. Stay where I'm, what, whatever. There's all kinds of decisions. Are you listening? Putting first things first, listening to the wisdom of God, letting God lead you forward because there's a way that seems right to a man and they only live in death. What's your next step of obedience? Deuteronomy, you'll notice I'm reading Exodus and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is written after Exodus. It was written as the second law. Duo, Deuteronomy, second law. It was written because this is the second generation after those who were who, part of the first generation had to die off before they could go into the promised land. And so what Moses does is he goes back and he retells the story and he reconnects God's principles so that they can make wise decisions as they're going into the promised land. And he reminds them, In chapter 30, he said, this is the commandment I give you. I command you today. It is not hard for you. It is not too hard for you, I should say. Neither is it too far off. So it's not like God's going to make this so difficult you can't live it out. See, I've set before you today life and good. Death and evil. Got two choices, life and good, death and evil. If you obey the commandments of the Lord, your God that I command you today by loving the Lord your God. Remember, this is about a relationship. starts with a relationship, but then it moves into a direction. And by walking in his way, start with a love relationship, move into walking in his ways. And by keeping his commandments and his statutes and his rules, then you shall live and multiply. And the Lord your God will bless you in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. If I'm not willing to follow the direction of God, I may very easily miss life, the life that God wants me to have. So in the last challenge he gives him in verse 19 of chapter 30, therefore choose life. You have a choice. Every single day you get up. You have choices. You put the first things first. You get wisdom in those decisions. He's going to lead you to life. 
You know, there's, we're doing this emphasis on helping people that are caught in human trafficking in Athens. And it's a part of our Christmas offering this year. A portion of it will go to helping to launch this new ministry. Let me just say this, because this is one of the things I've learned about. We've done human trafficking work in India. This is about our second time that we're focusing on some human trafficking. This one is in Athens, Greece. One of the things we've learned about this is some people are born into this. Think about children who are born into this, raised and groomed as kids to service grown-ups' desires as kids. They don't know there's another way. So this is the value of the blessing. This is the value of God's direction. What if we could help those kids, those mothers, those people caught in that lifestyle? I hope you'll be a part of that. I hope you'll be a part of that. Number four. It gives you direction as parents. There's so many things I, I could give. The list can go more than five. It can go 10. But it gives you direction as a parent. I could not miss this because the Shema is the most quoted Hebrew text in all of the Torah of the Old Testament. They literally quote it when they arise in the morning. They quote it when they go to bed at night. They quote it over their kids. The Shema is that sacred and you can't miss it as parents. Listen, if you're a parent, grandparent, you need to hear what I'm about to say. Your kids are commodified. People are buying your kids online right now. They're creating games, apps, to lure your kids in so that they will have fun on the app. I'm not against apps. I'm not against phones. I'm I'm just giving you one example of how your kids are commodified so that they will make decisions based on the rewiring of their brain based on the apps that they developed. Now, I'm not saying that you need to go lock your kids in a closet or put them in a bubble and all that kind of stuff. But here's what we got to realize as parents. We are fighting an uphill battle. Can I get an amen to that? And we cannot think for one skinny minute that if I take my kids to church on Sunday and put them in that class over there, they're going to reprogram all that 168 hours of the rest of the week out of them. One hour on Sunday will not get it, or one hour on Wednesday night with a student ministry will not get 168 other hours out of them. You as parents can only do what you you as parents can do. We as the church want to walk with you, want to help you, want to equip you, want to enable you to be better parents, to have guiding principles I guarantee you why our student ministry exists is not to entertain kids. It's not just so that we'll just fill up some time and, and hopefully in one hour we'll, we'll reprogram your kids or children's ministry the same or preschool ministry. Listen, what we will do, we will partner with you. Hero Israel. This is the phrase that is most quoted of all the Hebrew Torah. I could not share this message without sharing this. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Notice it always starts with a love relationship. It doesn't start with a group of, of do's and don'ts. It starts with a love relationship. 
And these words that I command you, now he goes into the do's and don'ts. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them to your, diligently to your children and you shall talk about them when you sit in your house and you shall walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. So literally he covers every moment of the day when they're getting up, when they're going down, when you're sitting at the table, when you're, when, when, when you're driving them to school, literally as a parent, we need to own the space that it is my job, it is my job as a parent. The church is here to help. Lastly, we align with Jesus when we live out his commandments, his directives. Bilateral covenant, if you do this, I'll do this. People who say the Ten Commandments, oh, that didn't apply, the Old Testament, no. Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated in the New Testament. People say Old Testament, back on the tithing, people who say, oh, that's an Old Testament thing, that's a Malachi thing. Listen, before the law was written, Abram was giving a, a tithe to Melchizedek, the king and priest of that land. You find Jesus in Matthew 23, 23, affirming the tithe. It's a part of it. It's a part of walking in obedience. What's your next step? of obedience. Jesus, did, he said, I, I didn't come uh, to, to annul the law. I came to fulfill the law. He said in Matthew 5, 17, he says, truly I say to you until the heavens and the earth pass away, not an iota, which is the smallest Hebrew letter. It's a little comma, iota. And not a dot, not even a period at the end of a sentence will pass away from the law until it is accomplished. Jesus didn't come to annul the law, cancel the law. He came to fulfill the law. In fact, if we understand the Old Testament, this is why this is a Christmas story. It's because actually the Old Testament, the covenants of old are leading us to the New Testament and the new covenant with Jesus. Galatians chapter 3, verse 24. Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ. The law brings us to Christ. When you look at the Abrahamic covenant, what are you looking at? You're looking at the grace of God flowing. Abraham didn't choose God. God chose Abraham. He was 75 years old, pagan, not walking with God. God chose him to be his, to walk with him, to follow him, to the land that he would show him. That's a relationship. Enter into a love relationship with God. That's the first thing. Enter into the blessing covenant with God. That's the first thing everyone in this room needs to do. Watching online, you've got to, you've got to do that. That's first. Secondly, once you enter into that love relationship with God, then you say, okay, God, guide my steps. Because that Mosaic covenant is a mutual give and receive where God gives us direction, we receive it, and we walk in it. And then we receive again his blessings of what he's going to do in our life. But when we counter it with our plans, our agenda, our ways, our thinking, we live with the consequences every day. Every day. Every one of us has set in front of us life and death, right and wrong. Choose life. Whatever happened to the Green Bay Packers? Well, that year, after focusing on the fundamentals, they go back to the NFL championship game 
and they didn't lose in the fourth quarter. They beat the New York Giants by a score of 16 to 7. Not by focusing on a new bag of tricks, but by focusing on what it meant to block and tackle and what it meant to live out the fundamentals. God's blessing leads to God's direction. Some of you here today, right now, aren't living under God's blessing, and all I'm going to do is give you the invitation that God gave Abram, follow me to the land that he will show you. That's the way Jesus gave his, his, his disciples an invitation. Hey, Peter, follow me, and I'll make you fishers of men. Hey, Nathaniel, come and see. Come follow me. When you follow Jesus, you become an apprentice of his. You enter a love relationship with him, where then he starts guiding our steps day by day so that we're making good, right decisions. Would you bow your heads with me? I want you to be real still. As you contemplate this one question that I've asked multiple times, what is your next step of obedience? Some of you, it's screaming at you right now and you know what it is. What's your next step of obedience? Give your life to Jesus. Do it. Tell me about it. Come see me at Guest Central. I want to know. I want to celebrate with you. We want to celebrate with you. What is your next step of obedience, Christ followers? What is out of line in your relationship with God? What is not first and foremost about Jesus in your life? Is it your time? Is it your talents? Is it your treasures? There's so many things that may not be right in line with him. It's not because he's trying to limit us and beat us down. It's because he's trying to set us up for the best life imaginable. Today, we're going to do our response time a little different. We're going to just sing it over you today. I want you to just remain seated today. I just want you to be in reflection today. I want you to be thinking about what is my next step of obedience. And zero in on that. Father God, in this space, in this time, make it clear what you're calling us to. as our next step of obedience.